We can tell that there's developers and operators. There's an actual team here, but I don't think that we're going to get a clear-cut answer on it's this one country. I think between private discussions with partners, speaking to other threat intel companies, doing some notifications, all that stuff, I think what's coming up to us is the possibility that this is more of like a contractor group of some sort. That's how we're treating them. More importantly, seeing them in a sea of Chinese and Iranian APTs, we're also doing our due diligence and going to what extent are we dealing with false flags? Is this a more advanced team from one of the other countries that we just can't quite call? I think the big takeaway from the Voibalar research is not necessarily the shock and awe of something super sophisticated like Metador, but rather a beautifully simple campaign of just blasting high value targets with phishing efforts to try and get access into their accounts for third-party customers, which often are mysterious in many ways. Welcome back to another episode of Mannion's Defenders Advantage podcast. I am your host, Luke McNamara. Joining me today, I have two researchers from Sentinel One, Juan Andres Guerrero Saad, Senior Director for Sentinel Labs, and Tom Hagel, Senior Threat Researcher at Sentinel Labs as well. Both these gentlemen are joining me today to talk about some research they are dropping at LabsCon this year, Sentinel One's new conference. So welcome to both of you, Juan and Tom. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke. Happy to be here. So by the time this comes out, uh, LabsCon will have already taken place, but people can still jealously look at all the topics that are on that list, (laughs) start thinking of things for the call of papers for next year. But Maybe before we get into these different research pieces that you guys are talking about at the conference, maybe just go into a little bit about the purpose and the intent for LabsCon in the sort of landscape of security conferences that are out there. What is this sort of trying to fill in terms of the niche? It's a good question and one we kind of have to think about a lot, right? Like you don't go into starting a conference quite that easily. And I think even we underestimated the amount of work that it was going to take. But it's been kind of a labor of love of saying there's a nice, big, packed schedule full of big conferences, but none where you know that it's worth kind of like saving your big research for going to an audience that you know is all competent folks who are already in the know, who are already interested in this, who can help contribute, collaborate, and I mean, to be honest, we had something like that with SaaS, which I think we all the SaaS of, you know, back in the day, which, you know, isn't really happening anymore. So for us, it felt like a good time to throw our hat in the ring and kind of create a bit of a space that we could invite everybody, right? Like it's not our own, like everybody assumes it's going to be this like big vendory thing. This podcast is coming out in the future. So I hope we succeeded in what we intended. But the whole point being, you know, Everyone, all the different vendors, all the different companies, independent researchers, govy folks, everybody just come. As long as you're bringing us original research, let's just get, you know, 150 Threat Intel folks in one room and just hopefully collab and, and get things going. Yeah, and a, a quick shout out to some of the Mandiant folks that are after, well, again, this is coming out afterwards, but we'll have presented there. Meal and Ashley, and Rufus and Van. There's quite a laundry list of interesting looking topics, two of which we're going to get in today. I think one that stood out to me the most is the one that's on the first day titled What We Can't Talk About or something like that with <laughs> Iguan, yourself, and then Chris Krebs and Tom Ridd, which is, a, I think, an interesting mix with that particular topic. And I'm guessing that's probably not one of the ones that's going to be a session recorded uh, for later. 
Definitely not recorded. So, I mean, part of part of this is we've been kind of blessed with having these big name folks like Chris Krebs, like Thomas Ridd, Kim Setter, Dimitri Alperovich, and, you know, a few other folks that we haven't even owned up to yet, at least at the time that we're <laughs> recording this. I think something that you get into with those really big personalities is a tendency to play it safe for conferences and not to their detriment in any way, particularly folks who've been in the government or part of the government. Like you're always kind of scared to to say too much and, and essentially create a story where there shouldn't be one. But our hope was to say, look, we're going to treat these as Chatham House rules for these very specific events. And let's have real conversations. I mean, there's things that, you know, Chris Krebs is a brilliant guy, lots of experience. Thomas Ridd is absolutely fantastic. There are topics that we just aren't touching on because they're unsavory or hopeless or run counter to what even some government efforts are trying to accomplish, but maybe failing at. And it would be cool to just have a few drinks and have a candid conversation about, you know, how some of these things are actually going. Right. And and like, I'm sure all conferences, some of the best conversations are the ones you have on the sidelines late at night over a couple of drinks. And that spawns kind of further interest and Weird pieces of research, and I will use that as a segue to maybe get into the the first topic we have today, which is uh, <laughs> Metador. So, Juan, what is Metador? Where did this initially come about, the finding of this, and, and what is it in terms of what you know about it now and, and kind of looking at this uh, piece of malware? So, Metador is this sort of fascinating new threat actor that we've been kind of sparring with for the past, I want to say, nine months, more or less, eight or nine months of, of research. Shout out to Amitai Ben-Shoshan Ehrlich from S1. He's the one who discovered it. He was supposed to be here with us as well, but, you know, he's kind of come down with a, a flu of some sort. Uh, so hopefully speedy recovery for him and he'll be able to be there to give his own talk at LabsCon. The listeners will know more than we do right now, whether he actually makes it. But in any case, Amitai is a sort of this fantastic hunter. And we have a customer that we refer to as sort of a magnet of threats, a nice term sort of coined back in the KL days for other sort of high target companies that just, you know, you walk in there and you've got six different APTs sitting on the same box. In this particular case, I want to say that the count is somewhere up to like nine or 11 different APTs in the same environment that we've been sort of battling through. It's really interesting for us because, you know, we rolled into this network deployed in this network after all these infections have taken place. So it's been, it's been this sort of mess of trying to kind of figure out where, where one APT ends, where the other one begins and what we can do about them. But as Amitai was sort of fighting through some of these different ones, we found a bunch of, you know, Chinese APTs and Iranian APTs. There was one that stood out as a particular mystery. And rather than trying to be spicy, the truth is that until now, it continues to be a mystery. Right. So we have this thing, this threat actor we call Metador, really quick sort of rundown. They're using very specific lull bins that we haven't seen before. Like in this particular case, they're using uh, the CDB debugger to load up a piece of shell code that then throws them into memory. They decode an orchestrator that decodes the next, you know, next stage thing that then loads up a different implant into memory. And it's this really nice chain that they've developed. Multiple platforms involved in this. They've clearly been around for a long time. And the more interesting thing is that they, they're targeting very specific telcos and using quite a few advanced techniques that we've, you've come to get used to and expect from sort of the one percenter APTs. 
but they don't fit the bill with any of the other groups that we've ever seen before. So it is this giant question mark that we've been dealing with for quite some time. And in terms of as you've been pulling the string and sort of unraveling this, what have been some of the things that have stood out? I guess, again, some of those weird characteristics of where this activity doesn't fit known threat actors, or some of those things that appear to be unusual, what you wouldn't expect for this type of this type of threat actor that would be going after targets of this nature? So, I mean, there, there's quite a few things in there. I mean, first of all, we kind of got hung up on the idea of attribution because it, you know, you always wonder who you're dealing with. And in this case, it's been kind of a hodgepodge. I, we don't know if intentionally or unintentionally, but you've got, you have English strings in there, at least two different types, right? Like there's somebody who speaks kind of a more highfalutin English. There's somebody who's got, you know, emojis and lols sort of put in there in the strings. You have also Spanish speakers involved, including like responses from the C2s where they'll just be like, nada, like nothing. You know, if you don't get anything from the C2 like you were expecting, there's a UTC plus one development timeline. So for us, we're like, okay, well, where are we sort of placing this thing? And it just keeps getting weirder. Like if you dig into the obfuscated version, which is something we should talk about, uh, they deployed this insanely obfuscated version once they realized that we were on the network. It actually contains lyrics from a Sisters of Mercy song, which is like a, a pop punk British band <laughs> from back in the day. And so it has these lyrics from a song called Ribbons. And we suspect that they're using it as part of sort of like the test for their, their crypto algorithm. But it's just there's so many nice little weird things. The second platform that they're using is they actually call it Mafalda. So for any Spanish speakers, Mafalda is like a, like a Kathy cartoon from like the 1940s and 50s from Argentina. It's like super popular as like political commentary in newspapers in Hispanic countries. So like there's all these weird references where we're like, I mean, are you guys Spanish speaking? Are you English speaking? Is it sort of a different group of devs? We can tell that there's, you know, developers and operators. So like there's a, there's an actual team here, but I don't think that we're going to get a clear cut answer on like it's this one country. I think between, you know, private discussions with partners, speaking to other threat intel companies, doing some notifications, all that stuff. I think what's coming up to us is the possibility that this is more of like a contractor group of some sort. And that's how we're treating them. More importantly, seeing them in a sea of Chinese and Iranian APTs, we're also, you know, doing our due diligence and going to what extent are we dealing with false flags? Is this a more advanced team from one of the other countries that we just can't quite call? So, you know, we're, we're going to keep it as a mystery for the time being. So you mentioned false flags and, and you kind of hinted at or referenced the threat actor's response to understanding that you were tracking or starting to kind of track and, and get your hooks into this activity. What did that particularly look like in, in terms of what they were doing, the obfuscation, some of the responses in particular to, to Sentinel-1 detections? And then what do you think that says particularly about Again, the care that this threat actor is paying to OPSEC to kind of thwarting attribution efforts, et cetera. So I think it's, it's particularly interesting. I mean, what got us interested in the threat actor more than all the others is actually the realization that they had deployed a new version of their tool to counteract Sentinel-1's product in particular. So it was named like S1.dll that, you know, they'd done a bunch of different modifications I think a bit of a shot in the dark in their part where they changed sort of to different sys calls and they, they were hoping that they would skip our behavioral engine if they started to call things in sort of unusual ways. Obviously, you know, they got caught, so it, it wasn't really working, but they tried. What they did succeed at, and I will say sort of 
immense credit to Alex Milankowski uh, in our team who has been killing himself reversing this thing. So essentially what happened is, you know, you have all these in memory, uh, different implants connected to each other, loading each other. The last sort of the, the highest version that we've been dealing with is Mafalda. And Mafalda gets replaced once they see us kind of deployed everywhere with a new version of Mafalda, but it is probably the most obfuscated piece of malware that I've had to deal with in any APT investigation. Uh, and I say I've had to deal with, in reality, you know, we gave Alex this massive headache and the man thankfully is a reversing genius and has been able to kind of fight it off. But what they did was take Mafalda, give us an updated version of Mafalda that had these new syscalls that had a bunch of new capabilities, but then they just completely slathered it in control flow obfuscation, opaque predicates, all these different, you know, it wasn't just like they, they, you know, obfuscated encrypted strings. In reality, you just, you can't find one function from another. Ida hiccups throughout the entire thing. Like, I think Alex has just basically been recreating this block by block in order to figure out what's going on with this implant. And to me, sort of like pulling back from the technicality of it, it's just, it, it shows a couple of particular things, interesting things. They're aware of the security solutions on the network. They feel that it's appropriate to respond to them. Their response wasn't just to pull back, which I think suggests sort of the importance of some of the targets and, and their approach to it. And I really doubt that they created this obfuscator on the fly. So I think they've had some of these tools kind of sitting around and some of these modifications and they rolled it out when they felt that it was appropriate. So to us, it did a lot more to kind of characterize who the threat actor is. I also point out sort of on the network side, part of the reason it's been so hard to understand sort of the scope of their operations is they're taking on a technique that I think we saw from campaigns like, you know, Dooku 2 and Project Sauron, where in order to minimize the fallout of one infection getting discovered, they use one IP per implant platform per victim. So even if you find them and you find that IP, at most you have one op. And then we've talked to all kinds of partners and done our best to sort of, you know, slew across trying to get behind that one IP. And what you find is a sort of round robin of anonymizer, you know, C2s. So there's just no way to use that to quickly traverse and say, okay, in reality, they have, you know, 25 victims across the world. So even though we have a very specific spread for us where we're like, okay, somewhere in Africa, somewhere in the Middle East, we've got a few infections. The truth is that we have no idea how far these operations actually spread. We see Windows implants, we see Linux implants, we see sort of this very well-constructed infrastructure. And it really like, I think the analogy you and I got into and what we were sort of chatting about this before is, it's like seeing a shark fin break out of the water, right? Like we know that it's a predator. We know that we should pay attention to where it is. We definitely don't know the size of this shark. And we've gotten to a point where we've exhausted the resources we have, I think as a community so far and in all the folks that we've talked to, and we need to kind of broaden that and say, look, there's something big here. Who has any more data? How can we figure out what else we're dealing with? Yeah. In terms of, you know, there's obviously, I guess, there a lot of obfuscation built into just the overall operation, separation of different components, as you mentioned, with the IPs and how they're using that, and probably a lot more additional implants that are out there, a lot more additional targets. 
with kind of, you know, the extent to where you've gotten with this now, and again, maybe by the time this is released and is public, you have more security researchers coming forward that have filled in some of those missing pieces, but... Wishful thinking here, yeah. <laughs> is this in, in terms of, in comparison, particularly to the fact that you've got telco targets, comparing this to other types of notable public, you know, targeting of, of telcos... Is there anything here that you think is an interesting trend or sort of signifying the types of threat actors that are going after these targets or just other sort of general things that organizations in this space should, should kind of pay attention to that this operation really signifies? So I think telcos and, and ISPs are really interesting in particular. I mean, they're obvious targets of interest for most governments. It's been a bit of a blind spot for a long time, and I continue to think of it as a blind spot. I'll sort of open that up a little bit, but essentially, I mean, there's this fantastic hippie talk, this hack in the box talk from years ago. I always sort of think about it where there was an incident responder for telcos who's talking about how, you know, they went into a network and they were doing other IR work and they just so happened to catch an account logged into one of these like PBX boxes. And they happened to find someone modifying the Plex code in memory for one of these old Ericsson devices. And like, it was just one of those stray shot in the dark. We just so happened to be sitting there with IR capabilities at just the right moment to catch this. And that talk, I mean, it must have been six, seven years ago that I watched this, but it has stuck in the back of my head ever since because it's like, there are so many threat actors out there that we're just not aware of at all. And telcos and ISPs are an obvious target for them to be interested in. They're enablers for much greater operations of all, of all stripes, right? Whether you want to infect other people or you're trying to track folks or you're trying to intercept communications. And then you've got great work in that area from Mandiant as well and, and other folks who have found things like MessageTap and some of these other pieces of malware that seem to be focused on ISPs and telcos. To us, I think it just signifies that like we're really missing things. And I, I think, you know, as much as it's uh, it's always a victory lap to say, look, we found this amazing APT, there's a side of humble pie that comes with this one. Like we can say we discovered this, Amitai discovered the APT, we've been tracking, we've been able to reverse it, the product work, you know, we caught them, awesome. But there's also this whole core network that we hadn't been deployed onto, you know, the customer hadn't deployed things on the core network. There's a whole other side of the house that is the Linux side of the house where all of these things actually operate, where you get the real functionality of what a telco does and folks don't feel the need to deploy on there or they won't let you do IR on there. And, you know, for us, we're looking at uh, Metador's operations and there's indications of one to two other Linux implants. One of them they refer to as CryShell, which we're pretty sure is what they use on their C2 hops in order to sort of, you know, enable this round robin of C2s. The other one, we just know because our the implant we found would collect what they call as the loot from other implants across the network. And one of them is supposed to be a Linux implant. So we know that there's things happening on some of these Linux servers within that same environment. And it's this sort of frustrating piece as a threat intel researcher where you're like, we know you're there. There's this dark matter sort of effect of like, we, we see the effects of what's there but we can't reach out and, and sort of find and really understand the full extent of this. So it, it is very much a call to action kind of moment where we're like, guys, come on, like we just latched onto, here's a string. Let's see sort of really what the sweater actually looks like. 
see more of what's underneath that that fin underwater. Yeah, right, right. Let's let's stick to the shark analogy, I think. <laughs> but it is interesting to think about, not just from a, a capability standpoint, as you get the maturation of more groups to do some of that activity, but also as just from an Intel standpoint, their desire to collect further up the, the information backbone, the information supply chain. If our capabilities of finding and detecting this type of activity become better over the years, I think we'll probably find more because there will also be more activity. I think as you know, we see some of the Iranian stuff and, and you know, showing a greater interest in going after telcos, mm-hmm. groups like Temp Zagris yeah. or, or Muddy Waters than they were doing you know, five years ago. And so I think that's just sort of the, the general nature and trend towards things. And there's probably already a lot right now that we're, we're missing to your, to your point. Without a doubt. I mean, like, I think how the story starts is what kind of keeps us on the hook, which is we already had almost 10 other APTs in there. And they're not the kind of APTs where you go, oh, my God, these guys are so high level, so capable. Clearly, we're seeing sort of the top tier creme de la creme of Iranian and Chinese APTs. Like, no, we're seeing what we're seeing is that a Huge swath of them seem to think that a telco is a perfectly legitimate target and one that they should inhabit. So who the hell are these other guys? And I think the takeaway is we can't really afford to look at the telco as like, yeah, it's a it's an enabler target that people care about, but only a certain kind of people. It's like, no, I think they've realized that just about anyone who can should have a foothold there. And it really kind of puts the onus on us to figure out how to how to keep that clean. Well, let's switch gears a little bit to, to Tom, who's been sitting patiently over here uh, on the other corner of our, our Zencaster room, because you're involved also in dropping some interesting research that uh, will have dropped, again, a reference to this having been uh, released after this conference takes place. But tell us a little bit about what you're talking about at LabsCon and the interesting story there. Yeah, so, you know, it's actually funny. The I think hearing Juan talk about Metador, it's almost like the exact opposite of what he's talking about is what I'll be talking about in, in many ways. So it'll be it'll be basically a talk that we're going to be releasing a report following the talk as well. So you should be able to catch a blog after the, when you're listening to this recording. But ultimately, what we're seeing here is a mercenary group that is most commonly known as Void Bilar. Trend Micro originally reported on them. And a few others like Amnesty International touched on small pieces of their campaigns over the last couple of years. But ultimately, what we were able to do is we ran into some of their, their actions in the wild against high value targets. And we're able to essentially take their infrastructure and pull out a lot of interesting details based on potential attribution, links to potential customers of this mercenary group. And a lot of just various means to ultimately tracking this this set of infrastructure in interesting ways. I think the the big takeaway from the Void Bilar research is not necessarily the shock and awe of something super sophisticated like Metador, but rather a simple, beautifully simple campaign of just blasting high value targets with phishing efforts to try and get access into their accounts for third-party customers, which often are mysterious in many ways. So good good bit of fun research. I hold infrastructure analysis really close to heart. I love that type of stuff. And this was kind of like the uh, the golden nugget because it just is a beautiful mess of infrastructure that leads to a lot of interesting things. <laughs> so a notable separation from what we saw with Metador where things are kind of tightly contained. This is one that you were able to kind of quickly map out. Maybe not quickly, but a simple yeah. map out and, and start finding and pivoting out to other pieces of goodness. 
Yeah, it's interesting because usually, like, you know, we look at like an APT. I would consider these guys an APT for what it's worth. That might be questionable depending on how you look at them. But usually when we're running into an APT, the challenge is connecting the dots between different pieces of infrastructure or other victims or different samples of malware out there. These guys, the challenge was how do I manage this amount of data of connecting all of their stuff because they're just so much. I mean, over the last couple of years, we're talking thousands, I believe close to five or 6,000 unique domains that are used for unique phishing campaigns. So the set of infrastructure is just massive. And each of those had the little pivots off of them as well. So, so yeah, the challenge has been, it's been easy in many ways, but also frustrating just because of it's challenging all the capabilities and all the tools I have to, to retain this data and manually and automated pivot off of it to try and find the interesting things. So you mentioned, you know, most of this activity, you know, appears to be phishing. They're doing credential collection stuff. They're spoofing common, typical login pages for different tech services and platforms. Mm -hmm. Do you see any of that phishing that seems very targeted and specific to the individual that potentially indicates that they've got other sort of intelligence resources helping build target packets or whatever that are are (coughs) maybe a little bit more specific than those sort of generic, you know, login pages? Yeah, absolutely. So it's worth noting that the original Trend Micro Research did a really great job at highlighting and first kind of profiling this actor based off an ad they saw on a, a dark web marketplace. And in that marketplace, they basically said, here are these lists of services we can get access to for a particular target. And here's how much it costs. And linking that to a set of infrastructure is kind of what kicked it off for Trend Micro. And that ultimately kind of gave us the profile for like what their general capabilities are. But taking that to modern day of what they're actually doing lately, what we're seeing are their, their infrastructure is generally themed around generic cloud services like Gmail, or we see some AWS stuff, lots of Google Docs, things like that. Very generic on that front. And then we see the actual email lures that direct these users to those, which ends up being like a credential attempting to, to get credentials off of them or two-factor keys. But the email lures, that's where it's becoming a little bit more unique to the individual, like you're mentioning. So in the blog and in the talk itself will be, there's two individuals that have released this information publicly that I can actually talk about. Others I have to kind of keep under, under the radar right now, but they're able to say, hey, I got fish with this and posted it on blogs over the years. And that allowed a lot of interesting pivots to identifying different types of victims. But ultimately, the phishing lures from them tend to be things like domestic activity related to high or highly relevant to them. For one example, we see a YouTuber that is well known for road racing motorcycles across Moscow and pranking local police by wearing their uniforms and putting lights on his motorcycle and pulling over people for fun, stealing motorcycles, lots of good fun. That individual received a traffic citation phishing lure email that directed them to this infrastructure for credentials. So there's a bit of a domestic kind of customer potentially there. And then another one we see another YouTuber based out of Moscow, but traveling the world that does mostly travel type vlogs, but there was in history, there was a a bit of a background in geopolitical topics on his YouTube channel. His was actually a local citation more relevant to his city, but he actually doesn't own a car. So (laughs) it was pretty interesting to see that. So yeah, there's lots of other examples as well, but those are the two that really stuck out to me. 
And in terms of like the regional breakdown of targets, I mean, you mentioned some that are at least appearing up in, in Russia. Do you mm-hmm. see sort of a broader, you know, more global array of targets or does it tend to stay Russia, European, Central Asia? Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk about kind of the interesting links to Russia in a minute. But in terms of targeting, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Like I just mentioned the domestic side, but there's very much a highly set, highly desired set of targets coming out of international interests as well. So we're seeing ultimately these, these targets have some sort from what we can tell, obviously we don't see everything, but from what we can tell, these targets do have some link back to Russian interests, either something political, something on the private business side, or, or something just generally tying them back. But we see individuals in, in the US, and we've seen them throughout various countries in Europe and even Africa as well. And they're ultimately in countries and potentially working on organiz- working in organizations or projects that are highly relevant to business transactions or even political situations that you see on the news today. So there's clearly like a domestic side, but the international side is even more interesting because it opens the door to questioning who other customers may be, or if it's the same customer that has international interests and things like that. So yeah, it's it's a huge variety. And and then there's also cases where we see individuals that are a part of what I would say like a pre-positioning type target set, where they're... And Trend Micro did a great profile on some of these targets as well, where they're going after telecommunication organizations and software organizations where they're continuing in this year as well, where they're, I think, getting access to facilitate future campaigns like being able to get phone records or get their local PII from a local teleco, things like that. The target set's vast. And I think there's more than just somebody wants you to hire them, but these guys are actually also building their tool set to be able to hack more people more elegantly in many ways. But you think looking at that targeting set, and maybe this is also based off of that initial research from Trend Micro, which you know points to their origins or their, their particular role, right? the fact that they're offering these services. But you think that the targeting suggests that they are probably servicing more than one customer. This is not a group tied to one of the different components of the Russian security services, but this is maybe a group that is supporting multiple customers. Yeah, exactly. I think the big thing there is what confirms that for me, at least in my head, is looking at the government geopolitical targets separate from the business, private business, legal, teleco type environments where there's likely some typical mercenary type customers like we see out of India where it's private equity or private investigators, law firms, things like that, I think is likely a, a set of customers as well. But it's hard to say exactly because again, we're only seeing so much of it. And every day I, I look into this more we start finding other clusters of infrastructure that connects in ways that is only connected through things like a unique format of a phishing lure or a unique format of the phishing page itself. But the cluster of infrastructure is not connected by any technical means. So I think there's a lot going on that we're not seeing. And this might just be the tip of the iceberg for what this group is capable of. But yeah, customer-wise, I think we're kind of spreading across many different industries. And what about, you know, talk a little bit about resourcing, because it seems like there's, I mean, pretty prolific uh, infrastructure here. You mentioned over 5,000 domains or so, and it seems like they've been pretty active against a a wide set of global targets. But we don't necessarily see, I guess from what you're saying, much malware associated with this particular group. You know, what's your sense of sort of the resourcing that's probably connected to this cluster and this actor? 
Yeah, it's interesting to say. So the malware side is very limited. There's been some like loaders and stuff that have been found on VT that pivot out to these domains or some phishing campaigns that provide just some generic loader or backdoor type stuff, but nothing. And that's all like open source stuff, but nothing that's like highly sophisticated or on, on great scales in very limited cases. For the most part, it's all seeking credentials and, and so forth. I think what we're seeing is in, t- in terms of resources is likely it's some sort of automated method of them creating this infrastructure and then scaling it out to a number of targets in ways to just simply get access and provide that access to the customer. So my guess is based on what we've seen on some potential attribution links as well, I think what we're seeing is a set of operators or, or a small development team that creates an automated way of scaling this infrastructure and collecting these credentials and giving them to customers for them to use as they wish. There's been some data theft a part of this as well, but I think that's where we're starting to step into the, okay, customer has access. Now they can do what they want. I think these guys really focus on just getting access and, and going outbound. And that might change a bit when you look at like those pre-positioning type targets like telcos or the mobile cell providers. That's where uh, they might get more hands-on keyboard and do more, more intelligence collection of their own for their own purposes. But again, limited perspective on that side. So with everything you kind of looked at now with this particular threat actor, what are some of the big outstanding questions you have and some things that you're looking to see kind of how they adapt or evolve going forward? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I'm tracking really closely, like I've been kind of hinting at this whole time, is the attribution link. So the blog itself and more so our talk at LabsCon is really going to highlight how this is kind of done. I want to demonstrate for the other researchers at the, the conference that how this can be done and finding this needle in the haystack out of the thousands of domains. We saw one particular case for four days on a piece of infrastructure where there was an overlap of technical access to basically shared SSH fingerprints in many cases between their phishing infrastructure that was being deployed and a set of operators out of Latvia. So that set of operators are associated with a company that essentially is known for basically doing contracting work and building web applications and custom applications for the customers. So there's potentially the, the attribution link there, I don't think can be ignored. So watching them very closely, seeing what they're going to be pushing up forwards, watching them very actively on social media, coming from watching them, you know, obviously lots of fun actor names potentially being coming, uh, coming from their social media accounts and so forth. But they're very noisy in terms of what they talk about and their interests and who they follow on Twitter. So I think that'll lead to some interesting, interesting things down the road. The other thing is, you know, that was a four day set of activity on one, one uh, piece of infrastructure out of this huge collection that created that interesting pivot. I think the other thing is the other potential link to a customer. I think these types of mistakes are going to happen more often. So automating the ability to identify these things is, is really important to me at this point. But in terms of identifying the customer, that was a similar type mistake where this set of domains were created for a new blast of phishing efforts that very much avoid Bilar theme that for less than a, a couple of hours, I believe, they, they landed on uh, an IP tying back to the Russian FSO. So is the FSO a customer? Is are they potentially providing networking resources for a customer of theirs, or are they supporting this group Boy Bilar? So there's a lot of mystery there as well that um, I hope to kind of track down in the future. 
when you look at this group and you look at it in comparison to maybe some other, you know, well-known hacker for hire groups, Dark Basin, I think one of the bigger ones in recent years, but also, I guess, maybe compare it thinking about the contrast or comparison to, you know, services that we've seen offered by some of the, the big surveillance providers, the NSO groups, the, the hacking teams, et cetera. Is there anything that is interesting about this group or that maybe, again, speaks to a potential trend? Or how do you think of this group in, in connection with if you're someone that wants the services you know, of this capability, right, to surveil individuals, you know, and, and where you can go and acquire that, where does this group, you know, fit within that larger landscape? Yeah, you know, when I look at these guys in terms of how they stack up against the other mercenaries, I feel like they're kind of in the early days of trying to figure it out. Like they saw an opportunity to get into this market and they're going full steam ahead. So their, their efforts are very amateurish in many ways. Their OPSEC is terrible. And the, the way they fish the, their targets is, is very much linkable to the wider set of activity. And they're very noisy about how they do it. So I think they're playing catch up right now. I think we're going to see them quickly evolve. They seem very motivated and very well resourced to be scaling at this pace. So I think we're going to be seeing them a lot more often. And I think it's a shame that you know, Trend Micro's report last year didn't get a lot of attention. There's a lot of stuff going on at that time in the world, but at least in our industry. But that set of infrastructure that they provide in their report is still active today. So nothing that's been publicly reported on these guys yet has stopped them. And I hope kind of what my talk provides is another kind of pivot point from other researchers to find their own cluster of activity related to this. But yeah, in terms of where they stack up, very low on the totem pole to the big guys out there. Maybe we'll start to see them deploy their own malware or start managing their own access rather than just getting credentials to emails and going outbound. If they start doing backdoors or any sort of things like that, it could be could be interesting. Well, this is two very different types of, of activity, but one which, again, there's a lot of continuing questions around kind of the nature of both these sets of activity. Gentlemen, any final thoughts or anything we've discussed here or what you're hoping to see from LabsCon as a conference going forward, you know, more of this type of research. Obviously, you guys are bringing your, your A game early on. So hopefully this doesn't intimidate people to bring some good <laughs> research next year. But no, I would hope not. I mean, you we get to kind of show off a little bit and what we've been working on. But I'm hoping that by the time this comes out, what we'll see is this absolutely stacked agenda of people from Mandiant, from Sophos, from open source, open security contexts. Like there's so many different places that have brought amazing talks. And what we're hoping to build is, well, assuming that we did well, assuming that, you know, LabsCon did, we didn't burn down the hotel or something like that. We can have more of a recurring forum for folks to know that this is the right stage for them to bring their cutting edge research to hold on to cool new stuff to give it to the right folks. There's places like Black Hat and DEF CON and everywhere else, but they're not forums for threat intel people. They just so happen to have threat intel content from time to time. So we're hoping that we can build more of, of a stage and a platform for our folks to feel like you know they have something to look forward to and that this is going to be a place where we can all come together and, and spawn some new collaborations and new stuff going forward. Yeah, I, th I think my, my the thing I'm looking forward to the most is really just the opportunity to truly collaborate. And I think this is kind of the, one of those rare type conferences where you have the ability to potentially make a difference on what you're actually researching, either expanding your knowledge or actually disrupting or doing something on that side because of the type of people that are going to be there. 
So the opportunity is ripe for actually getting that fulfillment as a researcher, I think. And rather than just kind of dumping it and locking up a stage, I think there's an opportunity for this just kind of being the tip of the iceberg to what you can do with your research in terms of publicly releasing it. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, coming out of the pandemic, it's great to see conferences like this emerging as well and being more forums for specifically research focused work. So love to see more of that. Uh, I also give a quick plug out to MYs because otherwise our marketing people will will yell at me. Um, (laughs) We have our own conference mid-October next month. So please check that out because this will have come out before that conference. So at least we can get people to that. But definitely check out these talks. I will include links in the show notes to the blogs associated with this. And I think there will also be at some point, maybe some videos or other sort of assets coming out of the, the conference. Yeah, we'll eventually tease out some of the videos. There's definitely a FOMO aspect to this, right? Like we've wanted to bring everyone on there. It's up to the speakers if they want their talks out. So there's some that may never see the light of day. You know, you needed to be there. And then there's there's some that will hopefully trickle out over the coming weeks. Gotcha. All the more reason to get tickets next year. Not, not too early to start uh, blocking off that time in 2023. So Juan, Tom, thank you for your time today. This is fascinating research. And again, a little bit weird that we're recording this uh, beforehand, but hopefully <laughs> everything went well with a conference. And yeah, look forward to seeing where this research goes from there. Thanks, Luke. Take care.